My name is David Daniels. I am one of the elders here. If you're visiting us for the first time, we're continuing through a sermon series through the book of Matthew. One of the reasons we preach through whole books of the Bible here is that it keeps us from avoiding the harder passages, like the one we'll read today. When God speaks hard words, we know He's doing it because He's a good Father who loves His children more than we could possibly imagine. Let us now pray to our Father once again that He would help us trust and obey what He wants to speak to us in His Word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, You are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Give us ears now that want nothing more than to hear your merciful and gracious voice. By your word preached and by your spirit's power, give us the heart of Christ that we would be slow to anger like you. And give us wills now that bow joyfully to your commands, knowing that they come from a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The death penalty currently exists in 27 of America's 50 states. The country is divided on what to do with murderers, if they should be executed or go to prison, and for how long. No matter where you stand on the issue, everyone believes murder is destructive enough to deserve some penalty. Whether you're here today and are Democrat or Republican, Christian or agnostic, we all want penalties serious enough to send this message. You cannot afford to murder somebody. Of the 27 states that have the death penalty, no one has ever received the death penalty for anger. And why would they? As I was studying for this sermon, I overheard my three-year-old's favorite cartoon teaching an anger management song that said, Stop, stop, stop. It's okay to feel angry. It's not, not, not okay to hurt someone. Part of me wishes that were true. The part that would oh so love to justify all my anger. But Jesus loves me and those around me too much to let me do that. According to Jesus, it's not always okay to feel angry. What we're about to read teaches that there is a penalty for anger. And it's shocking. And that penalty is meant to send us this message. You can no more afford to stay angry 
than commit murder. This message comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. For context, in the verse just before our passage, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How in the world could my righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day? Jesus begins to explain how in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, where he takes the scribes and Pharisees' standard of righteousness and raises the bar. Hear Jesus teaching now, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You cannot afford to stay angry. Jesus' teaching on anger comes in two parts. The penalty for anger and what repentance for anger looks like. We'll look at them one at a time. In part one, verses 21 and 22, Jesus makes a shocking claim that anger is a death penalty sin. We see this in verse 21, where he quotes one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Murder was a death penalty sin in ancient Israel. Whoever murdered was subject to judgment. God explains why to Noah in Genesis 9, saying, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. God's message then to every murderer is this. How dare you kill what I made for me? There would be no more murder if people had a healthy fear of the God they will one day stand before to be judged. People would know, I cannot afford to murder somebody. Matthew's original audience would have likely been as nervous as you are about being judged for murder. Not at all. They may have even felt above committing murder. I would never. But Jesus means to make us all nervous by what he says next. With authority only God's could speak with, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and then in verse 22 counters, 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And at that, everyone in the room goes from being innocent to guilty. Jesus connects the dots between murder and anger. Because righteousness not only obeys the letter of the law, you shall not murder, but also the heart of the law. You don't have blood on your hands? Hallelujah! But to enter the kingdom of heaven, your heart cannot be home to what causes people to murder. Anger. God's message then to everyone who is angry with their brother is this. How dare you murder in your heart what I made for me? There would be less anger if people had a healthy fear of the God they will one day stand before to be judged. People would know, I cannot afford to stay angry. And on that note, let's address the elephant in the room. Didn't Jesus get angry? There's no way he's singing joy to the world as he's flipping tables in the temple. Jesus would even go on to call the Pharisees blind fools. Even though in verse 22, Jesus teaches, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What gives? How is anger a death penalty sin if Jesus gets angry? It's helpful to know that these three stories, the Sermon on the Mount and the table flipping and the Pharisee name calling, are all recorded in the book of Matthew. Matthew clearly doesn't think Jesus is contradicting himself, nor does the Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew. So why not? The key to this riddle is right there in verses 21 and 22. Jesus wants to talk about murder. He wants to get to the heart of the command, you shall not murder. What kind of anger, then, is Jesus referring to if he's teaching about murder? He's referring to murderous anger, which isn't merely enough anger to murder someone. He's calling all unrighteous anger murderous, and therefore worthy of judgment and hellfire. Hold on, you may be thinking. According to verse 22, whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I don't even use the word fool, so I'm good. Maybe that would be the case if Jesus was listing sins in order from least to greatest. But we have no reason to believe saying, you fool, is worse than being angry with your brother or insulting them. So rather than a series of separate sins and punishments, Jesus is teaching what a murderous heart is, angry and what comes out of it, insults and slander, and all these crimes earn judgment and hellfire. So Jesus is off the hook. The only anger Jesus ever experienced was righteous anger. But it doesn't get us off the hook. Our anger is rarely righteous. If you don't believe me, if you're thinking, 
Speak for yourself, David. I always have a good reason to be angry. Allow me to draw out the difference between our anger and God's anger with a story from the Old Testament. As God is actually giving Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the Israelites are breaking them at the bottom of the mountain, worshiping a golden calf, saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Not humanity's finest moment. God tells Moses what's happening and says, Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against Israel, and I may consume them. What do we do around people whose wrath burns hot? We run. We hide. We duck for cover so we don't die. Because people with hot anger are dangerous. But do you know what Moses does when God's anger burns hot? He doesn't run from God and hide in the crevice of a rock. He does the unexpected. Moses talks to God. Now, if we do work up the courage to talk to someone whose wrath burns hot, it's going to be short and sweet. A gentle answer, lest we pour fuel on their fire. But Moses doesn't keep it short and sweet. He says, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Oh, he's not finished. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. A biblical counselor who's met a lot of angry people recounted this story and asked, Why is Moses still talking? You, you don't talk like that to people whose wrath is so hot they want to destroy somebody. And yet Moses talks to God that way. Is Moses stupid? Does he have a death wish? Or... Had Moses seen God free Israel from Egypt and then listened to Israel grumble and grumble and grumble about being freed from Egypt and God didn't zap them? Moses knew from experience that God's anger was slow. So even when God's wrath burned hot, Moses knew he wasn't dealing with a hothead. And God does relent at Moses' request. He chooses not to annihilate the Israelites. What does all this tell us about God's anger and how it's so unlike ours? If God is telling you he's angry and you still have breath in your lungs... That's an invitation to relationship. Moses feels comfortable drawing near to God and negotiating with him. Because God, in his anger, remains sober-minded 
and self-controlled. He's quick to listen, open to reason, and knows how to relent. God's anger is safe to those who draw near to him in faith. Would those who know you best describe your anger that way? Or have you been convinced by how God gets angry that you have an anger problem? If you're thinking, ooh, do I know somebody who needs to hear this message, (laughs) I get it. But Jesus means to leave you completely and utterly humbled, too. What does unrighteous anger appear like in your life? Kids, what about your family or friends do you find yourself complaining about? Students, how do you handle annoyances in the dorm? How do any of our hearts respond to social media, the news, politics, video games, or sports? How about when someone disrespects us, like our kids, our spouse, or fellow church members? Is it our glory to overlook an offense? Or do you not have time for that mess? They better repent in dust and ashes, or they're dead to me. (laughs) Unrighteous anger doesn't always sound like you fool and look like throwing something. Sometimes murderous anger looks like cold shoulders and sounds like sarcasm. Just because your form of anger is culturally acceptable doesn't mean it's morally neutral. You shouldn't be asking, is my anger permissible? You should be asking, is my anger necessary? Yes, you can be righteously angry. You should be righteously angry. It is unrighteous to not be angry about some things. And how do you know when your anger is righteous and not murderous. When it is loving anger. Behind God's anger is always love. Love for his glory and his people's eternal good. That's why Jesus flipped tables in the temple. His father's house was meant to be a house of prayer for all peoples, and it had been turned into a den of thieves. Jesus calls the Pharisees blind fools because they had shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Jesus gets angry because he loves God and people, and people were being kept from God. What percentage of our anger falls into that category? A man named James who heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in person later wrote, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But love does. And if love for God and neighbor is driving your anger, only then is it righteous. 
Unrighteous anger takes life. Righteous anger gives life. Unrighteous anger aims to wound. Righteous anger aims to heal. Unrighteous anger says, my will be done. Righteous anger says, your will be done. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will be subject to the hell of fire. If that scares you, Jesus' language is accomplishing what he intended. You only describe punishment as hell of fire so people know you cannot afford to stay angry. Have you ever been burned? I have, just cooking on the stovetop. Thankfully, God designed us with reflexes and my hand pulled away pretty quickly. But I still think I have a scar or two on my fingers for merely touching a hot pan for a split second. Imagine a worse torment than that for eternity. And remind yourself of that when you're tempted to not take your anger seriously. You cannot afford to stay angry. It's worth remembering who's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It is not a fire and brimstone, Bible-thumping, Baptist preacher who screams at you until he's sweaty. This is gentle and lowly Jesus preaching. The Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. The Jesus who said he wanted to gather the children of Jerusalem together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. That Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It should make us take his warning seriously. Like when you hear the most soft-spoken grandma you know raise her voice for the first time. You know it's serious. Beloved, sin is never safe. If you, professing Christian, do not have a posture toward unrepentant sin of this will be the death of me, you don't get it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Is that your dream, your sole desire? Take everything else. Give me God. All our competing desires that make us want to murder somebody who gets in the way are fool's gold. What do you want when you feel irritated, impatient, or bitter? Whatever it is, take that to God and say, not my will, but yours be done. I want to see you, so how do you, God, see this? You cannot afford to stay angry because only the pure in heart will see God. Perhaps to our surprise, Jesus motivates our obedience by holding out both penalty and prize. The penalty of hell 
and the prize of himself. We run toward the prize. We run toward Jesus. But the penalty is there to wake us up if we veer off the track and put our souls in danger. But if you want the prize, if you want to see God, then you're already likely thinking, okay, I know I have an anger problem. What now? If in part one of Jesus' lesson, he teaches that anger is a death penalty sin, in part two, verses 23 to 26, Jesus says what repentance looks like. It looks like seeking reconciliation. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus teaches, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus knows what anger usually produces, broken relationships. And even though all unrighteous anger is sin to repent of, Jesus focuses here on what to do when you wrong spiritual family. In verses 23 and 24, he wants us to imagine being in the house of the Lord. Back when the house of the Lord was still a temple, God's people would offer a variety of gifts to God at the altar. A modern equivalent might be when we used to collect tithes and offerings in service before COVID. And Jesus wants that person who's offering a gift in worship to stop if they remember their brother has something against them. What does that tell us about Jesus' priorities? That to obey is better than sacrifice. Beloved, has anger, irritation, annoyance caused distance between you and any members of this congregation? Can you remember anyone who has something against you? Something legitimate, of course. You're not responsible to appease everyone who has something against you if you didn't actually sin against them. But be honest with yourself, knowing you will one day stand before the judgment seat of God. If your anger is causing division in this church, do not leave this morning before you have that conversation. And yes, it is that urgent. Jesus said to leave your gift at the altar and go. Jesus cares about the timeliness of this. In a sense, it doesn't matter if you're sorry in your heart. If you haven't repented to that person, Jesus does not care how much you serve in this church or how much you give financially or how much you teach the Bible. He cares if you obey him. Jesus doesn't care about the sacrifice you want to make if you don't want to obey what he's plainly commanded. Do we care about what Jesus cares about? Jesus cares about unity in a real, visible family. A divided local church misrepresents him. It's not light to the world. It's not salty. If you don't prize unity in Christ 
over whatever causes relational distance for you, you are cutting the legs out from under any great commission work in this church. You want to see more baptisms, more conversions, more maturity in Christ? Reconcile. Seek reconciliation here and with anyone elsewhere who has something legitimate against you. And if you're still not convinced, Jesus hammers home the urgency of the situation in the final two verses of the passage. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. You cannot afford to stay angry. Jesus' message is clear. Repent now or pay for it forever. He says you will never get out until you have paid the last penny and you cannot pay your way out of hell. And I get it. Reconciling with people you've sinned against is hard. As I studied this passage, it became clear to me I couldn't preach this sermon without seeking reconciliation with someone who, I had sinned, who had something against me from years ago. I had repented before God, but never before them. And it was painful. It was painful to think about the damage of my sin. It was terrifying to face this person. Not because they're fearsome, but because I was ashamed. But I had to ask myself, do I believe obedience to God is worth it? Is any discomfort worth it to be called a son of God? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm sure Jesus brought up hellfire in verse 22, because if he didn't, no one would seek reconciliation. Do I want to go to hell or talk to this person. I'm hard pressed between the two. But being called a son of God is worth it. Beloved, consider God's patience with you. How many Sundays have you gathered and not sought reconciliation? How many times have you ate the Lord's Supper? How many songs of praise have you sung with unrepentant lips? And here you are, being beckoned by Jesus once again, because he is slow to anger. Let his kindness towards you move you to repentance. Now, if you happen to be the offended party, and someone has sinned against you in a damaging way, I'm sorry, you're not off the hook. Read Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, for what to do in that situation. Jesus doesn't demand you leave your gift at the altar, so you have time to go home and pray about it and seek wise counsel. Now, if you're the offended party and someone does approach you after church to reconcile, 
Remember Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. If God has forgiven you of greater debt, it's wicked to withhold forgiveness for a lesser debt. To be sure, forgiveness doesn't mean you have to trust this person today. You should only trust people who are trustworthy. Sin always affects relationship, even forgiven sin. So if someone has sinned heinously against you and repents, reconciliation will be a journey of repairing trust. Reconciliation starts with forgiveness, releasing them of debt in your heart, but that does not mean forgiving and forgetting. That's not in the Bible. So where does that leave us? In part one of Jesus' lesson, he teaches anger is a death penalty sin. In part two, he tells us what repentance for anger looks like, seeking reconciliation. You've been waiting to hear the good news. Here it is. You cannot afford to stay angry. And if you're a child of God, you won't. You will seek reconciliation with those you've sinned against in anger. Another man who heard the Sermon on the Mount in person named Peter wrote of Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why did Jesus bear our sins on the cross? Good news, it wasn't just so you could be forgiven and not go to hell. It wasn't just so the unrighteous who have faith in Christ could be seen by God as righteous on judgment day. No, Jesus' sin-bearing on the cross actually accomplished something for believers today. Jesus is not seated on his heavenly throne right now, twiddling his thumbs. He's interceding for his siblings. Christ sent his spirit to do in believers now what he paid for with infinitely precious blood, that they would die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, Jesus died so you would die to anger. Here's the question of the day. Do you think Jesus' death was effective? There's a right answer. If you're not fighting to put to death all unrighteous anger in your heart, it puts into question what you actually believe about God. To be clear, killing anger does not make you right with God. If you're here today and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, the fact that we're all guilty of murderous anger before God means hellfire awaits us all unless someone pays our penalty. And Jesus did that on the cross, suffering the hellfire of God's wrath for all who trust in him as their substitute. By faith in him alone are we made right with God. But in making you right with God, Jesus does more than free you from sin's guilt. He also frees you from sin's chains. A born-again Christian, then, can never say, I couldn't help it. I was powerless to overcome temptation. We can never say, 
that person made me sin. You will indeed sin until you see Jesus. You will struggle with anger until you see Jesus. But when believers face temptation, they always have a fighting chance because the eternal Son of God shed blood that you might die to anger and live to righteousness. Live to righteousness. Those who receive Christ's righteousness by faith live to righteousness by faith. Your hope then to die to anger is not in your emotional intelligence or in your anger management techniques. Your hope is in the king who has all authority in heaven and earth. When so-and-so gets on your last nerve, cry out to your Savior. When they've sinned against you for the 77th time, cry out to your Savior. When you should be angry, but you also feel like you might burn down their house, cry out to your Savior and ask, how can I love you and my enemy right now? Beloved, do you know that your brother is the king of the universe? With strength that upholds the planets in orbit, what sin can't you kill? What sin can't you kill that he's freed you from with his own blood? When you fall to murderous anger, Again and again and again. And your hope to ever love like Jesus wavers. Sing to yourself the words of that old hymn to remember where your hope to change rests. Would you be free of the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power in the blood for you to kill your anger. There is power for you to seek reconciliation. There is power to make you pure in heart. And there is power to make you a peacemaker. Because what Jesus shed his blood for, he achieves Look around the room, beloved, not to scare you, but you're surrounded by redeemed murderers of whom I am the foremost. We're people who have pledged war against our anger until we see Jesus. If you confess you have an anger problem, we'll help you fight by pointing you to Jesus. He's our helper and our prize. And yet... You may still be thinking as we close, Jesus is my prize. I have pledged war against my anger, but I still feel like I'm losing. If that's you, know this, beloved. He knows your frame. He remembers that you are dust. Remember who you once were, 
who you are now by his grace and who you will be when dust becomes glory. Let us all die to anger and live to righteousness with eyes of faith on the God whose children will see him forever. Hallelujah. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for mercy in Jesus. Thank you for your word. Please, by your spirit, bind our consciences to the truth that we cannot afford to stay angry. And may we be salt and light among nations that rage against you. Give us hearts that love obeying you more than an easy life. Give us hearts that treasure unity in Christ over getting what we want. And most of all, might nothing captivate us more than the thought of seeing you and being called your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.